passage today is Acts 5, 33 through 42. We're going to begin with verse 29 of Acts 5 so that we can see the message, the reply of the apostles to the Jewish council. And then we'll see how the Jewish council responds. They don't respond well, as we will see. So let us hear now God's word from Acts 5, beginning in verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do Regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let us now seek our God in prayer. Almighty God, we come asking that you would grant your blessing uh, to the words that we hear now as we look to this passage and its application to us. I pray that you would guide us by your Holy Spirit and that that word, this word, would penetrate into our hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you would, uh, by the Spirit's teaching, preach a much better message than I can right now. Uh, We pray this in the name of our Lord. Amen. Well, it's good to be back with you today to continue through Acts, and we see these remarkable accounts every time we come back to this book. We see much suffering, and we see much joy, which seems like they ought not to go together, but they do quite frequently in the book of Acts. The story of Christ's church in the world is a story of remarkable advance and triumph. But how does that advance and triumph happen? It happens through immense suffering, difficulty, and opposition. 
Christians throughout the ages have recognized this truth that the way the gospel advances is so often through intense opposition against it, intense suffering for the people of God who then share that word all over the world. It was the apostles who said in Acts 14 to the church, they said in Acts 14.22, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. And as Christians throughout the ages have recognized this, they've, they've said various things about the suffering of the church. Uh, so many of us are familiar with Tertullian's classic statement, which has proven itself true over and over again, when Tertullian said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, that as God's people face suffering and they face even death, they actually become seeds that are planted that grow the church all over the world. During the Reformation era, Theodore Beza, the successor of John Calvin in Geneva, he had this uh, great statement. He says, the church is an anvil which has worn down many hammers. Uh, You think of the work of a blacksmith whacking on that anvil. The anvil never breaks. That's, That's what he uses to finish things against Uh, The anvil is indestructible, and that is the church of Jesus Christ, because Jesus, our Lord, said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we see the same dynamic in our passage today, don't we? We see the apostles suffering. We see them beaten. We see them commanded to stop. And then they leave rejoicing, and they don't stop. That's exactly the dynamic that we see. The hammer of the Sanhedrin did not harm the anvil of the church, despite the cruel beating that they received. So the topic of our message today is this, joyful suffering in persecution. Joyful suffering in persecution. Now, how do these two things come together? How do you get joyful suffering? We must answer that it's only by the power of God, right? that these two things can come together at all. Now, this matter of persecution and opposition, our Lord Jesus spoke to it frequently. He said that if the world hated him, it will surely also hate us. He says it's not going to be possible that Jesus would be hated and that the world will just love you if you follow him. There's no possibility of such things taking place. And Paul also said that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says everybody, without exception, is going to deal with some kind of opposition. We've often used the uh, the football field analogy that if you're wearing a particular team jersey and you are on the field, you're going to have an enemy running after you. You're going to face opposition because you have aligned yourself with a particular team. It's okay if you're in the stands. You're not going to face any opposition there if you don't commit yourself to playing on that team. But if you make your allegiance to Christ known, you're going to deal with opposition. You're going to deal with pushback. And this persecution can take many forms. You can face within your immediate or extended family those that oppose you because of your convictions. They see you as uh, stubborn, and they see you as 
difficult because you are committed to convictions that they think are intolerable. But you know that they are your convictions because you follow Jesus. It may come through government tyranny and hostility. The opposition may come through the attacks of the evil one. But it's going to come in some way or another. You need to understand that in the Christian life, you are going to deal with pushback and opposition. There is not an option in the scriptures for a pain-free, trouble-free Christian life. I'm sorry if that is a shock to your system, but that is what our Lord Jesus told us. He says, you must, if you would follow me, take up your cross. You must follow in my path of suffering. Now, all of this could be rather frightening if we were concerned about all the opposition that we're going to face and the persecution of the world and the hostility of the evil one. This could be frightening But thankfully, we need not be frightened, brothers and sisters, because he who is in us is much greater than he who is in the world. We don't need to be afraid at all. So I want to cover three uh, parts of this narrative. The first is we will look at Gamaliel's advice to the council. We'll consider what is true about it and what is not true or not helpful about it. Secondly, we're going to witness the reality of suffering when these apostles are violently beaten for their commitment to proclaiming the name of Christ. And then thirdly, we'll look at the result of that persecution, the result being their their great joy in, in suffering. So let's look here at Gamaliel's statements to the council. That's where we're going to begin And we read what it was that the apostles said that led to this great opposition on the part of the council. You remember that Peter had once again boldly proclaimed Christ. He had said, Jesus has risen from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God. He is prince and savior. He's granting repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. And how did the Jewish leaders respond? The the passage says that they were furious. They were enraged by the words that they heard. They hated this message. Why does Israel need repentance, perhaps they thought? Granting repentance to Israel. We are the holy nation. We need repentance granted from a crucified, dead Messiah who claimed to be the Messiah. This is what you're telling us? They, They hated this message. And they were actually going to just kill the apostles. They said, all right, that's it. We are killing these men. We are executing them. We are going to put a stop to this movement. But Gamaliel stepped in at this point. He was was wise in some of the things that he said. Gamaliel was a senior leader among the Jewish council. He was well known in this period of history. You can read other historical accounts of Gamaliel. Uh, We recall that he was the uh, tutor the teacher of the Apostle Paul. We see this in Acts 22. It might be that Paul himself was in this meeting. That might be why we know about it, because remember, it's a closed-door meeting, so Luke would not have been witness to it at this point. Uh, Some eyewitness would have shared it with Luke. Perhaps it was Paul himself. So Gamaliel was a very prominent man. He was very respected. This is the kind of guy, one of those older men that you run into that... If he speaks, everybody stops and they listen and they take seriously what he has to say. He had a great deal of respect that he had garnered over his years of teaching. 
And so listen to what Gamaliel's advice was. He says, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, uh, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. So Gamaliel he references these revolts, these revolts that had taken place uh, in the past, very recent past. He mentions Judas and he mentions Theudas, and these men were amongst many other revolt movements against the Romans. It was a very common problem for the Roman Empire to have. These men rise up and they would gather a bunch of men to them and they would go try to attack some uh, fortress or go against the Romans. And it never really worked out. In fact, it doesn't even work out in the Jewish wars of AD 68 to 70. It goes very badly for the Jews. And the temple is destroyed. And so what the point that Gamaliel is making is this. If this is just man at work and God's not supporting it, it will come to nothing. It will not last. And in that regard, I think Gamaliel is very right. What, what should we think of what he says here? Gamaliel's basic point is very simple. Whatever God decrees to happen will happen. You can't stop God. If God wills it, no amount of human force can succeed against that plan. And so we can agree with Gamaliel. We can say, great, Gamaliel is a believer in the sovereignty of God. So are we. We believe that whatever God intends to do, he will do it. He will accomplish his purposes. <laughs> and Gamaliel didn't realize how prophetic his statements were. As we see throughout Acts, this plan that God had to advance the gospel did not fail. Gamaliel was right about this. And children, this is the first point in your notes. God's plan to advance the gospel all over the world will not fail. Gamaliel was dead on in that regard. If he says, if it's of God, you're not going to put a stop to it. So we look at Gamaliel's statement. We think so far, so good. He believes in the sovereignty of God. But there is something very much lacking about Gamaliel's perspective here. What is it? Gamaliel seems to lack a proper understanding of how human responsibility should play into this situation. Because if he is actually admitting the possibility that this movement is from God, it's not appropriate for everybody just to sit back and do nothing. They should believe it. They should repent and believe the gospel. That's what the apostles had been saying. If, if this is of God, and Jesus really rose from the dead, then the Jews should believe it. That was the appropriate thing that he should have counseled them. He should have said, well, if it's of God, we should look into it, we should consider it, and we should accept it. But he didn't recommend that. Gamaliel's advice has been followed by many over the centuries. 
It's, it's true that there's times in history where the persecution against the Christian faith is in the form of mass violence. We think of the many significant historical persecutions that have taken place, and that has been the strategy often of the dragon is to kill Christians. We will kill as many of them as, as we can in a certain period of time. We'll use this demonic force. We'll use these government forces. We will band together, and we will destroy the church of Christ. That's often the strategy, but sometimes what happens is people, rather than violently attacking the Christian faith, they take the Gamaliel approach and they just say, I don't care. I'm not even going to consider it. I'll just leave well enough alone. I don't have an opinion. I don't want to mess with it. But the claims of the gospel, brothers and sisters, they're so monumental, they're so consequential There's such a matter of eternal life or eternal death that it is foolishness for anyone to ignore the claims of this message. Sure, it's much easier to sit back and watch things happen. But the reality of what has happened through Jesus Christ demands every human being who encounters this message to consider it and to respond. You cannot do what Gamaliel suggests here. Because if this message is from God, you ignore it and reject it to your eternal destruction. That is the consequence that these people would face and that anybody faces who does not consider this message and respond in faith. So the council found Gamaliel's advice sound. They, they thought, well, this is a lot safer, it's easier won't lead to potential riots. Let's just beat them up really badly and let's tell them again not to do what they're doing because they had already commanded in the previous chapter to stop preaching about Jesus. So verse 40 says, They agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So the council thought, surely a harsh, painful beating will do the trick. I mean, who else, who in their right minds would go on preaching this message after we give them this kind of beating? This will surely be helpful to putting a stop to this. And I think we probably lack an adequate conception of how painful this beating probably was. The the beatings that the Jews or the Romans would inflict Uh, with whips, and as we know in the case of our Lord Jesus, with whips that were often filled with rocks and bits of glass and shards, would have been extremely painful, extremely uh, harming to their bodies. Now, we don't know for sure exactly how bad it was, but historical records would tell us that this was no mere slap on the wrist, right? These, These men, they probably left the council with blood dripping off their backs, We know it would have been limited to 40 lashes. The biblical law actually had a limit for such punishments, at least if they were following biblical law. And this has been the way that the world seeks to put a stop to the message of the gospel. They attempt to stop the work of God by using swords, whips, guns, prisons, government edicts, police, soldiers. This is... This is what the world has, right? 
But as we know, these resources are so limited in their effectiveness when you're dealing with a supernatural work of God. Even if someone is killed, that doesn't stop the Lord from advancing his saving gospel in the world because he can raise up other servants. He can bring replacements to those that fall as comrades in the, the truth for the truth of the gospel. And so often Jesus chose to use the, the death of his saints for the advance of the gospel. We'll see that with Stephen when we get to him here in the weeks to come. That Stephen is sovereignly determined by God to face persecution and execution, not in a meaningless way, but for the very advance of the gospel. Not every apostle or servant gets killed. Uh, God had chosen Stephen for that high calling. And so as we think about all that the world brings against the gospel, we must remember that it is thoroughly limited in its effectiveness to stop what God is doing. As our Lord Jesus says in Luke 12, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. You remember that, that our Lord Jesus says that there is nothing else they can do. They have completely used their resources up after they kill somebody. And we think, well, that's a very big deal. It's a very serious thing. And of course, we should take it seriously in the, in the regard that our Lord our Lord finds the death of his saints very precious in his sight. We should care about suffering saints. We should care about those that give their lives for Christ and the families that they leave behind. That should be very important to us. But we should not see it at, in any way inhibiting the purposes of God. Being beaten for the name of Jesus has been something that has continued throughout church history to the present day. <clears throat> there are many Christians around the world right now who are in prison for their Christian convictions and their refusal to give up those convictions. There are Christians right now, as we sit here, facing severe physical punishments or even potentially death because of their commitment to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That, that is a reality. And the Lord Jesus, who reigns over all, is with them. He is with them right now. And the prayers of the saints offered up on their behalf are meaningful to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think I sent it out in the order of worship email maybe the previous week because I intended to preach this message. And in Revelation, it says that the prayers of the saints go up as incense to God and then he puts it in the bowl of his wrath and then he pours out that wrath upon the earth and it has an effect. Uh, this should cause us to remember to pray to, to, to pray for, to remember, and to support the suffering saints around the world and to continue in that and not give up. Now, to illustrate the present reality of the, these things, I want to share with you a story from the burgeoning, growing church in China. And I use China as an example because we see so much of the supernatural work of God to advance the gospel despite immense opposition. The experience of Christians in places like China is sometimes like a living replay of the book of Acts. And the reason, I think, is because with much persecution <coughs> and pushback, the Lord empowers his servants in amazing ways to do things they otherwise couldn't do. And this is a reminder, brothers and sisters, that God will give us grace sufficient to face whatever he's called us to face we read these stories and we think, I can't really relate to that at this point. 
Well, you haven't been called to face what they're facing. But if, if the Lord Jesus calls you to do something harder, he can equip you with the grace that you need to do it. So let us hear something of the story of a pastor in China. This is a, a man that lived from 1914 to 2005. His name was Pastor Yuan Chiangchen. I'm probably butchering his name, but I won't worry about that since I don't know if any of you speak Chinese. But for those Chinese listeners to the recording, uh, excuse any mispronunciation. But Pastor Yuan was a house church pastor who lived through the communist revolution. He experienced that because he was born in 1914, experienced the communist revolution in 1949. And in 1949, the communist revolution in China succeeded and they took the capital of Beijing and had control over most of the country. And progressively, they, they had control of, over the entirety of China. And initially, Pastor Yuan was not too concerned about the fact that this atheistic government had taken over. He he was concerned, of course, about the unbelief, but he didn't believe that they were really going to do anything to try to harm the church. Because what did the the government and Communist Party promise to them and promise to the Christians? They had promised freedom of religion. Well, you know how communist promises work, right? Rather hollow. It's a lie. And so Pastor Yuan began to see that what freedom of religion meant for the communists was not really freedom of religion, of course. And as the years progressed, Pastor Yuan was concerned that the churches in China would be independent of government control. He didn't want the government to have their hands in the running and in the teaching of the Church of Christ. And he was very right to have that concern. He understood that the Communist Party should have absolutely zero say in what the church did and did not do. But communists are not content to leave things out of their jurisdiction, right? It's a totalitarian mindset. And so they want to control everything. And the communists, they saw the Christian faith as a Western imperialist movement that was going to harm Chinese interests. At least that's how they presented it. And so the Communist Party, with the help of some Christian leaders, decided to form a state-authorized church. And you may be familiar with the name of that movement in China. It's called the Three Self Patriotic Movement. At least that's how it renders in English. Uh, Three Self Patriotic Movement. And the irony of the Three Self Patriotic Movement is that it means three things. Self-governance self-support, and self-propagation, which is, again, uh, ironic because it's all under the oversight of the Communist Party. It's not independent at all. It's very ironic. But Pastor Yuan knew that this whole movement, this whole state-authorized church thing, he could not abide by it because it would be to allow a political party that was atheistic to control the church of Jesus Christ. Of course, he knew that any political party controlling any church was wrong because Jesus alone is head of the church. And so what happened as this movement developed, this three-self movement in China, (laughs) is that if you did not support it, you were seen as extreme and dangerous and you were hostile to Chinese interests. You were in support of foreign imperialists that were trying to invade China. 
Well, Jesus is not a Western capitalist imperialist, but that's how they wanted to present it, right? They wanted to say, this is some Western movement. Of course, ironically, Jesus isn't even from the West. Uh, That was not something that they recognized or would acknowledge. But listen to what Pastor Yuen said. He said, the head of the church is Jesus, not an official at the religious affairs office. And that is exactly the right theological perspective to have. No civil government has the right, the authority, to rule the Church of Jesus Christ in any way. They have no business to interfere with the affairs of the church. So Pastor Yuan, he he continued his house church meetings, separate from the three-self movement. But eventually he got in trouble for this. On April 19, 1958, two policemen came to Pastor Yuen's door. They invited him for a friendly chat down at the Public Security Bureau office. And once Pastor Yuen arrived for that so-called friendly chat, he was read his arrest warrant. He was charged with being an active counter-revolutionary, and he was handcuffed and thrown into prison for what he had done. Soldiers then and went and ransacked his house. They took copies of the Bible, the hymnals, the Christian books. They destroyed them. They pried up floorboards in his house, took apart the walls, looking for any Christian materials that he was storing. From this point on, Pastor Yuan was in prison for a period of 21 years of his life. Pastor Yuan's wife lost her job. His son was removed from a position he had at school. The family was forced to move from their present home and they were crammed into a tiny 160 square foot uh, house in a different neighborhood. While Pastor Yuan was in prison, his his family suffered greatly from the oppression of the government. And one day, Pastor Yuan's wife, she found that there was no food left for the children. She had no way to feed her children anymore. They were down to nothing. And so she cried out. She prayed. She said, God, we don't have rice. We don't have flour. We don't have anything to eat. It's going to be like this tomorrow. If you think we should suffer like this, we will accept it. I will feed them with hot water. The next day, a woman came to the door. She said, is this Brother Yuan's home? Pastor Yuan's wife nodded. The woman took an envelope, handed it to Pastor Yuan's wife, and the envelope contained just enough money to continue to feed the children the Lord had provided. While Pastor Yuan was in prison, he attended mandatory training classes on communist ideology. He was to be retrained. He was to be refashioned in their image and in their teaching. Pastor Yuan sat through many sessions, but his son testified that even though he sat through many political study sessions, his mind was elsewhere. He never paid attention. In other words, he was not a very good student uh, at the communist classes. And that lack of attention came at a cost for Pastor Yuen. He would not toe the line, and he would not give up the authority of Jesus Christ, and so eventually he was thrown into solitary confinement. The soldiers asked Pastor Yuen, do you still believe in God? Pastor Yuen said, yes. The soldiers replied, you are an obstinate, incorrigible, and extreme counter-revolutionary. Your problem can no longer be solved by study sessions you deserve severe punishment. Pastor Yuan then lived in solitary confinement and almost total darkness for six months of that 21 years. 
During the day, he was ordered to sit with his back straight and reflect on his sins against the communist government. For six months, he was in that cell without any bath, without any change of clothes. And when he emerged from the cell, his son said that he had looked like a skeleton. He was filthy and weak. He could barely walk and he could barely see because his eyes hadn't seen light for six months. Eventually, he was released from his dingy, dark cell, but his prison sentence was not over. He was in prison for many more years after that. He moved between four different prisons over 21 years of imprisonment. Once he was eventually released, he actually testified that he had one of the strongest backs amongst people of his generation because he had been forced to sit straight all day long. So there was at least one benefit of the suffering. But more than that, eventually he was released. And in all of that, Jesus Christ was glorified as worthy, worthy of such suffering. Pastor Yuen was sustained by the Lord for 21 years. And many other prisoners in his conditions would have tried to have committed suicide, but Pastor Yuen did not. In 1979, he was released with many other Christian prisoners as the situation was changing in China. But he remained under government surveillance. The government said, okay, you're released, but we're going to keep a really close eye on you and what you're doing. And so he resumed his activities as a pastor. He resumed as a house church pastor near, uh, within Beijing. And he began the church once again after being in prison for t- 21 years. He began the church and within, he began the church with 10 people, but within just a few years, the congregation grew to over 300 people meeting clandestinely in the capital of China. In 18, 1989, during the protests in Tiananmen Square, Pastor Yuan was active in ministering to those oppressed by the violence of the Communist Party. Pastor Yuan was there that day, the, the, the massacre that took place in Tiananmen Square, and he could hear the gunshots from his home. But Pastor Yuan still hosted the church service, and the next morning after church, he got up at 5 a.m., he biked nine miles and preached to Christians in another home, all while this is going on here in the capital. And he preached a sermon condemning what the communists were doing right around him. Even though people were being randomly shot in the streets, Pastor Yuan, now 80 years old, was biking around town and preaching the gospel. As of 2004, Pastor Yuan continued his preaching of the scriptures in Beijing, and he was such an embarrassment to the Communist Party that whenever a foreign head of state would visit, they would actually hide him away somewhere. So when Barack Obama visited, Pastor Yuan and his wife were taken away to a hotel that was further removed from where Barack Obama was visiting so that there couldn't be any chance of contact between him and these foreign heads of state. As Pastor Yuan grew older, he became even more fearless and determined. Police would frequently show up at his house, and he would tell them. He says, if my fellow Christians want to come and worship, I can't stop them unless you put a padlock on my house and arrest me. I'm a person with faith, and when this country's religious laws contravene my faith, I will follow the word of God. He died in 2005 at the age of 92, committed to the authority of Jesus Christ to his dying day, and his children have followed in his footsteps. So I share this story, brothers and sisters, to, in the spirit of Hebrews 11, give you an example of faith to remember. 
You and I are not called to face six months of solitary confinement. You and I are not called to face 21 years of imprisonment. But I would ask us, what are we risking for the sake of our Christian convictions right now? What will you risk for the Lord Jesus Christ? You're not called to this particular scenario at this point, but we are all called to some opportunity in which we must risk ourselves for the sake of Christ. Will you risk anything? Will you suffer shame because you're associated with the name of Jesus? Will you suffer the loss of any earthly thing for his name? And now, if we are Christians, then the answer surely must be yes. We must consider then what opportunity we have to risk something for the sake of Jesus' name. So kids, this is the second point in your notes. Number two, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must be willing to give up anything for him. You must be willing to suffer for him. And my prayer for myself in light of our passage today is that I would have a greater boldness. This is something that I've struggled with throughout my life. I don't know if you can relate to that struggle against the fear of man. But that has been the area in which I want God to grow me so that I can speak without shame, without fear, without concern, as I have opportunity to bear witness to the name of Christ. So let's continue now. We're going to see the result of the persecution finally in our passage. Verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So how do we explain this response? They leave the council. Their their backs are bleeding. They're, They're feeling the pain of this calling that Jesus has given them. But they don't leave the council despondent. They don't leave weeping. They're not fearful. They're not ready to abandon their ministry. Instead, they leave rejoicing. Surely this is not a natural response to a severe beating. We know that this is not ordinarily how people respond to such difficulty and pain. (coughs) The only explanation is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit filling these men. Do you remember the prayer of Acts 4? Uh, Back in Acts 4, verse 29, the the Christians had gathered together after the initial uh, opposition they had faced. And one of the things that they prayed for, they said, Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Not only were they suffering here, brothers and sisters, but they were also suffering shame. You notice what it said in the text. They suffered shame for the sake of his name. There was a shame from the authorities, and that shame was heaped upon them, probably by other people in Jerusalem who might have rejected the gospel. You think about what that would be like to go out from a council having been whipped and punished and considered to be a criminal by the ruling authorities. That, that brings upon you a certain kind of shame. If you think about Christians in the modern day, whether in America or elsewhere, if they are charged with certain kinds of crimes, even if those charges are completely unjust, people around them view them rather askance. They, they, they view them very negatively. People think, oh, this is a radical person, this is a person that has broken the law and they deserve what, what has come to them. And so it involves a kind of shame from the world. But they're not concerned about any of this. In fact, they are 
we could really say they, could, they are glad that they have suffered in this way for Jesus. This is the calculation of faith, brothers and sisters, that we see it differently than the world would see it. We see it as, I was counted worthy to suffer for his name. I was given the great honor and the great privilege of being associated with the greatest person the world has ever known, Jesus Christ. By faith, the apostles understood that the name of Jesus is such a name of honor and glory, and that to be associated with that name is a great privilege. Do you think about your association with the name of Christ in that way as a great privilege? We don't say something like, oh, because I'm a Christian, I guess I have to say that I believe in Jesus, even though it will invite shame and mockery, I guess I have to be honest about this. That's not the spirit in which we speak, is it? We say instead, because I am a Christian, I have the greatest privilege to be considered as one who belongs to Jesus, the Savior of all the Lord of all, the great shepherd, the great high priest, the one exalted above all authority, the risen one, the king of love. This is the one I claim as my savior and Lord. This is the privilege of being associated with the name that is above all names. The mindset is not, I have to suffer for Jesus. Rather, the mindset is, I get to suffer for Jesus. What a glorious calling, what an honor it is to be associated with him. Do you remember reading of those stories of all the, the, uh, the knights who would go forth in battle and they would carry forth the banner of their king and as they carried forth that banner, they would tell the king before they departed, I would count it an honor to die for you in this battle. That's how these warriors of old would think. They knew that there was such an honor in suffering for the name of a great king. And so it should be for us that we, as we hold forth the banner of the gospel, that we say it is such an honor to be this one, to be one who can share this with others and potentially deal with the shame of that. So kids, this is the third point in your notes, number three. It is the highest honor to be a disciple of Jesus and to suffer for him and to be shamed because we follow him. And so if that happens to you, if you face one of those situations where (coughs) you are shamed because of what you believe and people laugh at you, they scorn you, they ridicule you, they say slanderous things against you, you are called by the Lord Jesus Christ to rejoice in that day. And in fact, Jesus went even further in Luke 6. He says, you should leap for joy. That's an amazing step to consider. Leaping for joy when you are slandered for the name of Christ. We should hold forth that banner of Christ proudly in the sense that we boast in the cross of Christ. Boasting in the victory that Jesus has won and honoring his name as the great king. But this will only be possible, brothers and sisters, if his name is precious to us. You won't suffer for his name if you treat his name as of little importance. You have to love the one that you would suffer for. You have to see his name as 
truly that name above all names. And this is then a question for each of us. Do I honor the name of Christ? Do I love him who died for me and rose again? Now, finally, we see in our passage, the passage ends by reminding us that the apostles did not obey the authorities at all. I always loved how Luke ended this chapter for us. They didn't obey in the least. Verse 42, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now, what were they commanded in verse 40? They commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they did the complete opposite of what they were commanded to do, right? Now, you might have wondered, well, could they have modified their strategy just to be a little bit more under the radar? Just Maybe they could do like a quiet coffee shop Bible studies and just invite people to come. And they, they wouldn't speak up too loud. They could, they could pray silently in their meetings. That would help. That was not the apostolic strategy, was it? To get quieter? That's not the strategy that the scriptures call us to. We are to get louder, is the point of this example. The often ironic outcome of persecution is that it can have the opposite of its intended effect. Where the faith is most persecuted, sometimes it rises to its most boldest expressions, as we see in the case of China and other countries. Persecution has a galvanizing effect. It makes the church stronger in many cases to stand more steadfast in sharing the message. We see that when Paul was imprisoned in Philippians 1. You remember when he says, I've I've been imprisoned. It's become evident to the whole palace guard that my chains are in Christ. Now, what was the effect of that? Was it that everybody got quiet and everybody stopped talking about how they were a Christian and everything went underground? No, it says this, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Of course, the faith of one can inspire the faith of others. When you see the faith of one whom God has given his grace to who isn't afraid, that strengthens all of us, doesn't it? And interestingly, Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7 has a similar effect when he is killed it actually spreads the message of the gospel further and further from there. We'll get to study this in more detail, but listen to Acts 8, verse 1, and Acts 8, verse 4. Right after Stephen is killed, we we might think, okay, this is going to put a real damper (coughs) on the advance of the gospel, but that's not what happens. Acts 8, verse 1. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, what did they scatter and do? Well, verse 4 says, Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Isn't that a remarkable effect? You kill one, you scatter the rest, and rather than stopping the message, you actually spread the message way further than you ever intended. This is what happens because of the persecution of the church. Sometimes when you're attempting to get rid of a plant that is full of seeds, in the process you actually scatter more seeds all over the place. 
I remember when I was a teenager, one of the tasks I was given by my dad was the job of eradicating the massive yucca plant population from our property in Elizabeth. 35 acres with untold numbers of yucca plants. This was a job that I worked on for years, and in a sense, I never really finished. I attempted to eradicate the yucca plant population with a variety of means. I shoveled them out with hand shovels. I used Roundup and other weed killers sprayed from the back of our ATV to try to kill them. And then I even, we even went so far as we uh, rented a skid steer and we rented a tractor as well. And, and then I, I went into mass removal mode that way. That was a very efficient tool for getting rid of lots of yuccas. But I learned something about yuccas in the process. It was a very frustrating reality, and that is that on the top of these yucca plants are these seed pods. Have you seen these things? They grow up, and they're full of these seeds. And so as I'm trying to shovel out a yucca plant or spray it, what happens to that seed pod is it explodes, and there's seeds that go everywhere. And I'm thinking, I just planted a bunch of yucca plants by trying to remove this yucca plant. And so every time I destroyed a group of yuccas, hundreds of seeds were scattered, which invited the regrowth of the very plants that I was attempting to destroy. And so eventually I learned I need to start clipping off these seed pods before I remove the plant. We'll get rid of the seed pods, then we'll get rid of the plant. Now, I see something like my yucca plant experience happening in Acts chapter 8, right? Just like those seed pods. These, the church of Christ is scattered everywhere, like seeds, preaching the word. And that is, has often been the case in times of church history. Sometimes persecution drives the advance of the gospel. In fact, an example of this would be the Huguenots in France. In, in France, they were severely persecuted. And the Huguenots, in order to continue their ministry, many of them did flee France. <coughs> but they did not flee to just go hide and do nothing. They fled to take the gospel elsewhere. And so they go to America, they go to Canada, they go to South America, and what do they do? They plant the church there. And the gospel reaches people that otherwise would not have reached had not God used the persecution in France to send them elsewhere. Of course, it didn't go well for France. That was a very bad decision. Got rid of most of their godliest, wisest people in the process. But that was God's purpose. And so in all of this, brothers and sisters, let us keep in mind the purposes of God in persecution. What is he up to? When we were getting these updates from the Lockmans for many months, and they, they gave us the prayer sheets, and we heard some of the stories. Some of the stories are just hard to hear. But we must ask in all of this, what is God doing with his church in this land? Why is the, the, the pain and the difficulty so severe in that place? Well, we know that it's not because God has abandoned his people. We know that his purposes are being fulfilled. Even as we pray for relief, as we pray for deliverance, as we pray for a stop to persecution, we know that God's purposes are being fulfilled. Now, one last thing I want to, to end with is what it was that they were preaching. A very simple summary in Acts 5.42 it says, daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so we must remember what was the core of the apostolic message. What was it that they were delivering to the world? It was that Jesus was the Messiah who fulfilled all the promises that God had made 
He was the Savior of the world. And so it's important for us to remember as we follow in this apostolic pattern that the central proclamation of the church throughout all ages is still Jesus as the Christ. Now, by that, I don't mean a narrow reductionistic message in which we only talk about getting saved and only that, as if getting saved is this one-time moment with no other ramifications. We're not talking about that. Certainly, we want a gospel that is all of life and its impact. We want the Bible applied to all of life. We want the implications of Jesus and his gospel transforming everything. But what I mean is that Jesus remains central to the proclamation of the word that we bring. If you don't have Jesus in the proclamation, you're missing the main thing. There's been a practice circulating for some time, and we don't know where it began, but there's a practice in a number of churches over the centuries to place this metal plaque on the pulpit here, not for the congregation, but for the preacher. And often what has been put on that metal plaque is the words of the Greeks in John 12. Do you remember what the Greeks said to the apostles in John 12? They said to the apostles, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They didn't want to see the apostles. They wanted to see Jesus. And so it has become a practice in some churches to put that plaque right there in front of the the preacher so that whoever the preacher is, that he will see what people really want to hear and see, which is not himself, but Jesus. We don't know who started this practice, but it it serves as a good reminder for everyone who stands behind a pulpit that whatever you are delivering to the people of God, make sure that they see Jesus as you do so. And so I hope that as we preach the whole counsel of God, as we apply the word to all of life that we'll hear from This pulpit, we'll hear in all of our Bible studies, we'll hear in our parenting, the proclamation of Jesus as the Christ. This is so important for everything that we do as a church. We will hear that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come to save us, the one who has come to restore this broken creation and to reign forever as King of kings and Lord of lords. It is him that we proclaim. It is him that is central to the message that we bring. So, brothers and sisters, let us close in prayer asking that God would strengthen us for the calling that we have as well. Father in heaven, we thank you for the time that we have had in in this word. We ask, O God, that you would strengthen us to be those that do not fear man. I pray that you would give us the faith and the love to willingly and joyfully suffer for our Lord. As we have opportunity to sacrifice something, I pray that we would sacrifice it joyfully to fulfill the calling that we have been given in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.